Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Sean Newkirk and Jesse Anderson on to talk about the bad bullpen over the first week and a half of the season. We'll also discuss some potential long-term deals the Royals could do with some of the younger players. But first, uh, I'd like to introduce a special guest. He's Joel Penfield. He, uh, he writes over at Royals Farm Report, also runs the podcast over there. He also uh, does a little work for 2080 Baseball, which is an excellent uh, resource if you're into scouting. Uh, Joel, thanks so much for joining the show. Absolutely, Max. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to finally, it's the first time I've gotten to talk to you, so I'm glad to be able to get this opportunity. Yeah, it's cool that there's so many great, uh, you know, people writing about the Royals and so many great blogs and podcasts. And uh, I've mean, you know, we, we, we already have Josh Kaiser and Alex Duvall uh, writing at our site, and of course they write at Royals Farm Report as well. And so I guess the big announcement that I wanted to make is that uh, the Royals Farm Report podcast, which has been an excellent podcast, uh, will be kind of be featured on our podcast as well on Royals Review Radio, so that if you are subscribed to Royals Review Radio, uh, you will be also getting the Royals Farm Report podcast. Uh, you can also still find it over at Royals Farm Report, uh, but that's uh, that'll be a great addition, and uh, I just wanted to welcome you to Royals Review Radio, and, um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys talk about on your podcast. Yeah, so we mostly talk about kind of the, just whatever topics kind of come about. Obviously, we started the podcast during the off season, so trying to find topics to discuss was a little kind of few and far between. But uh, as the season's gotten started, we talked a little bit. Of, we talk a little bit of just royal stuff in general, but we tried to hit um, kind of whatever the news of the you know the week or whatever's going on with the system, and try and talk about that and try and you know give guys a, a platform to kind of give the system a platform. Uh, so that people can kind of see a little, get a little taste of the future is really what we're trying to do there. Well, with the start that the Royals have gotten off to, I think a lot of Royals fans are going to be looking towards the future and focusing on those prospects. And the minor league season got underway last uh, Friday. And I think um, I think the most important players in this rebuild process were taken in the draft last year, and that's a trio of pitchers that have kind of stood out in Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, and Daniel Lynch. And, and, you know, we've gotten we saw Singer make his professional debut this past week. Uh, Lynch was pretty impressive at the end of last year. Coar uh, had some pretty good performances as well. In your mind, is which one of those kind of stands out in, in, among those three? And what, 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 do you, what do you kind of see those three becoming uh, down the road? Well, I think what Royals fans can look forward to is a group of three pitchers that are all going to move pretty quickly and move together. And they're very, very all three are very good in their own right. Daniel Lynch was a guy that really kind of broke out at the end of last season, really his, his junior year at Virginia. 
you know, not really, he didn't really throw that hard. Virginia teaches a very specific way of pitching where it's kind of pitch to contact, don't worry about velocity. And he essentially just started pitching his own way and it boosted his draft stock a ton. And then we saw that continue to move when he went up to Lexington after a couple starts in Burlington. And he kind of just shoved at the end of the year and he was just fantastic. Gets the bump up to uh, Wilmington this year and in his first start, he was the opening day guy actually. And he kind of got knocked around his first couple innings, settled in pretty nicely. But he's a guy that we expect to move pretty quickly. He won't be in Wilmington very long, and really none of these guys will. Singer and Kowar will also move pretty quickly as well, we imagine. Uh, Singer obviously got his professional debut and threw five hitless innings. I think he reached a pitch count, and they took him out. But that was still very impressive for him as well. And then Kowar goes out and was touching 98 with his fastball, wipeout changeup. And he's hit it, and he threw five or six hitless innings as well. So to see those performances early on is so important. These guys are going to move quickly. I think of all these guys, I don't think it would be surprising to see uh, Brady Singer in Kansas City by the end of 2020. And I think uh, Daniel Lynch and Jackson Carr are going to be 2021. But either way, to see those guys move and progress as quickly as they will is going to be huge for this rebuild. And I think they're going to be a huge cornerstone of that. Yeah, and I think the Royals will really need that starting pitching, uh, especially knowing how kind of pitching starved they've been in the rotation the last uh, really decade. Um, so uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great if we could see those guys at the big league level before too long. But it's, you know, we're gonna have to be patient. You know, like you said, it's probably gonna be at least 2020, 2021 before we see some of these guys break through. One guy that we could see as soon as this year is Richard Lovelady. Uh, and he's a guy that, um, you know, fan favorite, I think, because of his name, but also because he's been a pretty talented pitcher uh, at every level he's been at. Uh, a lot of fans were kind of surprised he wasn't even considered to make the opening day roster. But how long before you expect to see him in Kansas City? And what what, what should we expect when we see him uh, make it to the major leagues? Well, I mean, the thing is, he's profiled as a major league reliever, at least, you know, a lefty only guy for about the last two year, two plus years. So realistically, we should have seen him at the end of probably even 2017, to be honest with you. But the problem is we have to wait for a 40-man spot to open to even see him. He's not even on the 40-man roster right now. So until they select his contract, we're just kind of playing a waiting game for Richard Lovelady. But fastball slider, you know, really, you know, fastball reaches 95-96, kind of a funky sort of three-quarter delivery. He could be, you know, a guy that you can just throw out there for an inning and be good at, you know, at lowest He's kind of a loogie type, which I still think is he's still going to be effective in any role that he comes up. I just want to see him pitch in the major leagues. And at some point, I think they need to with all the how awful the bullpen has been this year. You can't get any worse. And I really just want to see him and see what he can do at the major league level. And I think he'll be just as effective as anybody else in that bullpen, because quite frankly, it can't get any worse. Yeah. And Zips, you know, in Zips is kind of difficult at projecting just minor league stats, but they projected him to be our best reliever this year, which you know wouldn't surprise me at all, considering, uh, like I said, the bar the bar is set so low <laughs> that uh, that that wouldn't uh, be all that hard to clear. But uh, yeah, I think he's a guy that that should be up in the big leagues. You would think pretty soon. I, I'm kind of surprised. It seems like they were pretty aggressive about promoting guys running up to 2015. You know, Hosmer came up without regard to the Super Two deadline. Salvador Perez, they they brought him up. You know, from A to Double A to the big leagues pretty quickly. On the other hand, now it seems like, you know, Lovelady, uh, you know, you say he didn't get called up in September last year, didn't make the roster this year. Same with Nicky Lopez, didn't get a 40, you know, didn't get called up in September last year. It, it seems like the Royals are being a lot more patient um, with, with, with promotions, at least to the big league level. Is that kind of the, the vibe you're getting from the organization? And, and do you agree with that strategy considering the, the rebuild they're going through? 
You see, I think it's almost like kind of being hesitant or wanting to, you know, hold on to guys that might almost to a fault at this point. If you're in a rebuild, you might as well bring up some of these guys and see what happens and just let these guys get at bats and let them get innings and just see what they can do while you're bad. So that at least, you know, as things start moving forward, the rebuild starts to continue, team starts getting better. They at least had the experience and can come in and be effective. And if they're not, then, oh, well, you know, then you kind of move on. But I at least want to see these guys major because we don't know what they can do. And Nicky Lopez is down there, and he's a major league shortstop, whether he is, you know, a stud or just, you know, an average major league player. He is a major league player, and he's a major league bat. And I'd love to see him in the majors here soon. Same with Richard Lovelady and a few others. So I kind of have a hard time with the, you know, kind of waiting and holding back because what do you have to lose at this point? You're going to lose 90 to 100 games this year. Why not just bring these guys up and kind of see what happens, service time be damned, and just kind of see where it goes? I, that's what I would rather see. That's just kind of my two cents on it. I would rather see some of these guys up now rather than later. And I think that the hesitation has always been, you know, you call a guy up too early, he kind of falls flat in his face, his confidence is deflated, and you may have set back his development. I don't know if that's actually been the case, though. I don't know if there's any kind of, like, empirical proof to that. I mean, like, Mike Moustakis got called up at a pretty early age uh, and had, he did okay initially and then kind of really cratered after that. Uh, but I don't know if that, that really hurt his development or hurt his confidence. I mean, he always seems like he was a pretty confident guy uh, and eventually he turned it around. And I kind of feel like the, the way you improve is to get regular, you know, at bats at a higher level to be challenged. You know, you're not, you're never going to learn to hit major league pitching unless you face major league pitchers. Exactly. And so, yeah, I kind of feel like, I don't want to be overly aggressive, but um, but yeah, I don't I don't think it I don't know if there's a whole lot of downside to being a, a little bit aggressive, especially with your top end talent. Uh, so I am a little surprised they're being a little more hesitant. I guess it's not a terrible thing, uh, but like you said, in a lost season like this, maybe it'd be worth it to see you know a little bit more what these guys can do. Uh, you know, a lot of the attention is given to I guess the top end of the the farm system, um, and I don't know if this is I don't know if this is necessarily a deep farm system, but I've had this argument with with Sean Newkirk. That we, you know, I feel like we have a lot of like C, C plus prospects, which I don't mean that in a disparaging term. Like, there's a lot of guys that like have the potential to take a big jump this year uh, that may be under the radar. So, in your mind, like, what are some sleepers in the farm system that um, may not be like a top 100, top, top? I know you know 2080 baseball had their top 20, 125 prospects this uh, this week. Um, so maybe not guys on that list, but a guy that you know, maybe he hasn't had a lot of exposure yet, or maybe um, he's just a, you know, a, a good season away from making a list like that. Who's who's kind of the sleeper in the organization you think could make a big jump this year? So I think the, this is the guy that we're all pretty high on at Royals Farm, especially on the podcast with Alex Duvall, Patrick Brennan, Drake Downing, and others, uh, is Kyle Isbell. He was the second, second or third round pick out of UNLV last year and kind of flew under the radar. And then he went to uh, rookie Idaho Falls short season and just could not stop hitting home runs and was just hitting the crap out of the ball. Got the promotion to Lexington at the end of the year in the playoff push and just kept hitting and kept hitting and kept hitting. Uh, he's a solid left-handed bat, you know, mostly contact, got a little bit of pop. Uh, and he's now in, on that Wilmington squad with all, you know, all the, you know, main prospects that are in the system right now that are at the top of most lists. And he's the guy that I think is really going to work his way into those, you know, those top 100 lists here pretty soon up there with some of these other guys. Um, we have I, I have him in my top 10 uh, at the over Royals Farm. He's a guy that I think is going to be a legit major league guy here in a couple years. 
uh, maybe not, you know, top end, you know, top 20, you know, outfielder in baseball, but just a solid player, you know, that just kind of fits the mold of what the Royals want to have, especially in an outfielder and whatever home runs or whatever power comes, then you take it. But I think a good gap to gap hitter with a good glove and some decent speed, you know, I think he kind of fits the Royals mold. What's kind of your sense on, on where the Royals farm system is, uh, like in in relative terms to other organizations, I know they've been ranked near the bottom by a lot of organization rankings. But there's been a few. I think Baseball America had them at like 17. Uh, and you know, and I know I don't expect you to know like every single farm system. But what's kind of your general sense on where they are, and and, and do you feel like the farm system is improving as much as it needs to for this rebuild to be successful? I think it is. And I think if we want to look in the future, you know, three or four years down the road when the Royals are competitive again, hopefully, then we can look back to that 2018 draft as really kind of the turning point for it because of how many guys they were able to get, especially with the big three and pitchers and got hopefully a guy like Espel and a few others. And even 2017, when you look at Prado, Gigliotti and MJ Melendez as well. Um, but I, I would say the Royals are definitely improving and they're de- they've definitely gotten better over the last two years in the farm system ranks. I would have them probably in that 19 to 22 range, somewhere like that. I don't have definitive numbers, but that's just kind of my ballpark estimate. It's just so hard to tell right now because most of their top prospects are in A ball, in low A and high A, and then they're starting to work up toward double A, triple A. But it's going to be hard. It, two years from now, I think realistically we're looking at a top 10 system. But right now it's just so hard to tell because there's so much variance with young players still trying to get their feet wet in professional baseball. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think you're right. I think like in the 20s sounds about right to me. Just because like Singer just made his professional debut, you know, Coar and Lynch have only pitched for a couple months. But th- that this could be completely completely different in a year when you know those guys have a full season under their belt. Kyle Isbell will have a full season under his belt. We'll have the number two overall pick in the farm system at that point. And um, and a lot of these other guys, I think, could take a step forward. Guys like, uh, you know, Jeffrey Del Rosario, Jigliot is back this year, uh, finally healthy. Um, you know, there's a couple other intriguing guys uh, that I think could be could be have an impact on the farm system, and we could uh, see that ranking rise quite a bit in one year. Speaking of the the number two pick, I don't know, you know, if you've been looking at the draft too much, but do you do you have a kind of philosophy on how you want the Royals to attack that number two pick in the draft? I mean, I, obviously they should go for the best player available, um, but is there is there maybe a philosophy in your mind is you know to go for more for pitchers, more for hitters? Um, you know, is there preference for high school guys or college guys? What's what's kind of your philosophy when it comes to the draft? So, yeah, I think the way that and you're probably asking the wrong guy with this because I follow the draft, but not that closely mm-hmm. because I think it's such an inexact science that it's really tough to tell where the Royals are going to go. I think they're going to lean toward a bat personally. I would love for them to take Adley Rutschman, the catcher from Oregon State, but it's looking more and more likely like he's going to go first overall to Baltimore. Uh, if he slips to number two, then we should all just party in Kansas City because he is a stud. Switch hitting catcher with a lot of power and a good glove, son of a gun, he's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if number two, I would really like to take Andrew Vaughn, first baseman from uh, Cal, Cal Berkeley. He has done nothing but hit in his whole career. I think he's a pretty. I think he would be a great guy to pick. Um, and I don't think it necessarily blocks Prado in any way. Uh, I would be interested to see what the Royals do there. Bobby Witt Jr. is another guy, uh, is a, one of the top prep guys out of this class that has been seen as kind of a consensus top five picks. There's a lot of different ways the Royals could go. I think, like I said, I think they lean more toward a bat, but then again, they've kind of surprised us in the past with some of their picks. 
So I'd be interested to see, you know, when June rolls around, what who they ended up taking at that second overall. It does seem like a kind of a hitter-heavy draft at the top. Um, like most of the names I've seen bandied about with the first two or three picks have, have all been hitters. So I think you're right about that. Vaughn is, yeah, his, his numbers are very impressive. If you if you ever want to Google his numbers at Cal, I mean, you'll be kind of blown away. He's just mashing so far this year. And I know he's a guy that Sean Newkirk is really high on as well, but he thinks there's absolutely no chance the Royals get, get him. It doesn't seem like the profile is their kind of guy, uh, but we'll see. I mean, the Royals sometimes surprise you, uh, and, and if he if his numbers are that overwhelming, I mean, they may they may have no choice but to take him. But, uh, Joel, uh, first of all, thanks so much for joining the, the, the podcast, or joining our podcast network. Uh, this has been really cool, and uh, we look forward to kind of the takes you, you, you'll have for us. Uh, and the, the and you've had some great interviews on your podcast, which is really cool. So I'm looking forward to listening to that. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about where we can find your writing, your podcast, and maybe follow you on Twitter. All right, so you can follow at Royals Farm if you're not following Royals Farm Report already. And the podcast will be up there as well. It's on SoundCloud for now, but obviously you'll be, find, be able to find it on all platforms once we join the podcast network. And you can follow me at JT Penfield. I tweet about Royals, uh, Oklahoma State. I tweet just baseball stuff in general or just any funny sort of thing that comes across my timeline. Joel, thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Max. Most of the time we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. We're back, and I'm now joined by Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm Max Good, and I'm, I'm glad to say that when we sign off here, we have a, we, I think we have a winner for our sign-off. Oh, we do. Okay, well, stay tuned to the end of this podcast to find out what our new ending catchphrase is, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to find out. So, cool. cool. Uh, also joining us for the first time ever, a uh, new writer, uh, but longtime reader and commenter on the site, Jesse Anderson. Jesse, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Max. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, well... The Royals. Let's. We have to talk about the Royals. I know it's only April, April, but um, that seems like the season's already kind of going in the toilet. And you know, I think any optimism Royals fans would have had after the first two games has been quickly dashed um, by the bullpen. And they've gone on a six-game losing streak, and there have been four games in there where they either were tied or had the lead going into the seventh inning, only to blow it uh, thanks to that bullpen. Uh, it's it's a it's a bullpen that has going into Sunday's game an 8.86 ERA. That's the third worst in baseball. They did toss two shutout innings on Sunday, but they uh, ultimately the team lost again. Uh, Jesse, is this you know the bullpen was bad last year, but is this kind of what we should have expected? I mean, there are new faces this year, but it's not like they went out and signed Craig Kimbrell. It's a lot of untested guys. So is this is this start is this terrible start by the bullpen uh, a surprise at all to you? Um, I don't again think I don't think it would be a surprise. Uh, I think that we 
maybe didn't expect it to be quite as bad as it has been. And I really think as the season goes on, we'll see it regress, uh, positive regression, some actually, where it won't be as bad as it has been. Um, but I still think it's going to be one of the worst bullpens in baseball. Sean, you know, I think uh, some people have brought up, and I think Lee Judge in particular, that the Royals don't have any defined bullpen roles out there. Um, and that could mess with their domes and maybe, you know, the guys need to be prepared in the seventh inning role, eighth inning role. And, you know, Ned Yost has been using different guys in the closing role, different guys in the seventh, different guys in the eighth. Uh, do you think that has an impact at all? Or is this just that the talent level is not really out good out there? Yeah. Yeah. They don't have to find roles because they all stink. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> does it matter who pitches the ninth if you if everybody's just going to blow it? Or, I mean, I'm looking at it now and this is actually, hold on, let me do as of, I can include today's stats too. Um, yeah, I mean, every every player except for Ian Kennedy is at replacement level or worse. One, two, three, four, five guys are below replacement level, including Brad Boxberger, who had a nice little outing today but still wasn't good enough um, to get him above replacement level. So, I mean, no, the whole kind of staff stinks. So, I mean, what are you going to uh, – the, the roles are only as good as, you know, the players in those roles. And, um, no, I don't think that's getting in their head. I just think it's a collection of, of a bad bullpen. If you were wondering what the worst Royals bullpen – start ever is in the month of april it is 6.98 in 2002 you guys probably i don't know if you guys remember 2002 but those are uh pretty bad years um last year we had they had a 6.42 era with justin Grimm and blaine boyer and brandon maurer that's the third worst in franchise history they could make a run at it this year but i i do kind of agree with jesse i think that there's going to be some regression i don't think these guys are quite that bad but jesse what can they do to maybe improve the situation a little bit other than just waiting for guys to regress back towards a mean. I mean, some people have said getting Kyle Zimmer a, a bigger role, but then we saw him kind of blow up in Detroit with, uh, with all those walks and he hasn't really looked all that great since his first outing. Is there anything they can do at all um, to, to kind of remedy this bullpen and at least get it not even, it doesn't have to be like HDH, but at least to get to be a decent bullpen again. Well, as for Zimmer, um, I'm a little bit on the side of defending his outing, or his, his second outing. He hadn't pitched in a week, or maybe a little more, and uh, it was what, freezing, 32, 33 degrees, or something like that, and it seemed like the problem was really that he couldn't get any command of his off-speed pitches. Um, and I I was a pitcher in Little League, and through high school a little bit, and I remember pitching in 40-degree weather, and it, it's hard to get that seam um, so for a guy that's out of practice uh, and hadn't been used much, I I, I want to give him a pass on that outing. Well, and also he like he didn't pitch at all last year, and he's got very little professional experience under his belt. I mean, and to, you know to expect him to go to the major leagues and just have a seamless transition is probably a lot to ask for. So yes. I I think there's going to be a lot of rocky outings like that. I mean, he's got great stuff, and I think he'll have a ultimately a, a pretty good season. But there's going to be some bumps along the way, and and, and I think expectably so. Sean, what do you think? Are, is, is, is there anything the Royals can do to kind of patch this bullpen together? How quickly do you think they start making moves, uh, uh, calling guys up from Omaha? Yeah, I mean, I know there's been a lot of – and I have stoked those flames myself with, uh, like, Richard Lovelady being called up. And even Richard Lovelady's dad is on Twitter kind of <laughs> shouting at the clouds about it. Um, so – I don't know what moves. I think that there's almost no way they get rid of some of these guys like Kennedy and Peralta. 
Um, obviously, Zimmer's sticking around. Barlow's probably going to stick around too. Uh, they like Tim Hill, so I think there could be some <clears throat> some like fodder with like the Jake Diekman type, and um, I guess maybe Boxberger if he really doesn't do very well. Um, but I think they're going to kick it around. But I think this is the bullpen for the most part, because um, even in Omaha, I mean, it's more kind of just that exact same of um, I don't want to call it you know float Sam, but it's not. There's not much hope other than really love lady uh, for the most part. And I think most of the guys that are in Omaha are basically guys that, um, uh, you know, it's your Kevin McCarthy types that are already down there that you kind of already have an idea of what they are. So if there is some relief, I think it's love lady. And I, I, I don't know when he'll be up, but I, if they haven't called him up by now, I don't know what they're waiting on anyways. Well, I, I just to jump in would say that they're probably not going to get rid of any of the veterans they have on one year deals uh, until the trade deadlines pass, because if they can put together three, four, five outings where they're scoreless towards the deadline, somebody will give us something for them. It may be minor league filler or a DFA candidate, but at least it'll be something. Yeah, and and I, think I, I think that's really what they're looking for. I think there's also just like a, this history with Dade Moore of like sticking with veterans kind of well past they established that they're not very good. I mean, uh, Blaine Boyer last year was just god-awful, and he he was on the active roster through May 28th. He went, he went on the disabled list at that point. They actually didn't release him till August, uh, and he was that was about one of the worst pitching relief pitching seasons I've ever seen out of a Royals pitcher, 12.05 ERA. And it's not like they were paying him a lot of money or he was like this really hot-shot all-star that they had sunk money into. He was like a minor league invite. Who they you know who's like thirty in his late thirties, who they really liked as a person, but just couldn't get anyone out, and they stuck with him through through Memorial Day, and that's um, that's pretty remarkable. I would expect that this to be the same case with some of the veterans they have, like Diekman and Boxberger. I think they'll stick with him through the whole season, uh, and I think Boxberger and Diekman will pitch. I think they'll be solid eventually. I don't think they'll be they'll be great, um, but I think they're they're at least established major league pitchers. But I do think that you'll start seeing, uh, you know, some some guys shuffled in and out. Tim Hill hasn't looked particularly great. Um, yeah, I think, you know, guys um, like Kyle Zimmer is probably not a lock to stick on this uh, in the, on this roster at this point. I mean, uh, they may decide, hey, we don't want him to get overwhelmed. Let's send him down to Omaha to regain his confidence, regain his, his stuff, get some um, innings under his belt, and maybe we'll see him come back. Sean's right, though. I don't see a whole lot in Omaha to get excited about being an improvement um you know certainly love lady i think would be but you know michael yanoa is like 27 years old uh kind of has established he's kind of a triple a guy we'll see if he has anything left i mean people were impressed with the slider in camp but i don't know that he's going to be a huge improvement i mean then you're talking about guys like jake newberry and glenn sparkman who are pretty much replacement level guys who i don't know that the track record there would indicate they're, they're going to be much better but um i mean at that point, there's going to be a point, I think, in the next couple of weeks where you're just like, let's just try, guys. I mean, because we can't get a worse performance than we're getting right now. 8.86 bullpen ERA going into Sunday's game. I mean, at that point, you're just kind of looking for anyone uh, anyone to improve. So, anyway, Sean, any other impressions you're getting from the first 10 games of the season? Is, is the speed really that dynamic for the Royals so far? Um, I think someone in the in the comments of the game thread today, um, today being Sunday, um, they mentioned how like our kind of our, our common theme of, you know, you can't steal first base. And um, it was nice to see, I mean, Hamilton got three hits today, so it's nice to see him on the bases and actually being able to attempt that. But 
other than that, he's oh for whatever it is um, outside of that. And um, so now, I mean, it's kind of been that same recurrent theme where, yeah, once they get on base, it, there is some havoc that's nice, but um, it, it's no excuse when you're five through nine hitters are basically, you know, putting up blanks every single every single game. And they actually, and they had three guys thrown out on the bases on Sunday. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like live with the speed, die with the speed. Uh, yeah. And I'm kind of surprised. They've only – they've got six stolen bases, at least going into Sunday. And there are six teams that have stolen – five teams that have stolen more than that. And uh, I think more than that that have attempted more steals. So I was, I'm kind of surprised they haven't been a little more aggressive. I thought that, like, every time they get on first base, you'd see a guy take off. But that hasn't quite been the case. And Terrence Gore, we've barely seen him so far this year. I have to wonder how long that experiment's going to last, uh, especially if stars, guys start getting hurt. And I think they have a stretch now where they're going to have 19 games in 19 days. And if you have a short bench because you're carrying a, a pinch runner and three first basemen, uh, that's going to start uh, wearing on your roster a little bit. Yeah, uh, just, speaking of speaking of that 19 and 19 straight days, I'm I'm sure I'm, play, I'm sure the players are glad that they got Friday off. Uh, after having however many, you know, after having last Friday off too, and then uh, all the rest of the spring. So that's that's one thing that I, I gave me a headache was, you know, now they got to go play 19 straight after, and they got a random Friday off after they, you know, one week into the season. Yeah, having a Friday without a baseball, that's a big bummer. And I, look, I get why they do it because Detroit had opening day on Thursday, and you need that day to reschedule games if there's bad weather. But man, it just it just kills like the momentum of the season. Like you're all excited for baseball to start, and then it's like there's three off days in the first yeah. ten ten yeah. days. Ah, oh, it's just a bummer. I I yeah, baseball has to do something about that. Maybe maybe start start Detroit season off in like Mexico or something like that. Somewhere where there's some nice weather. But Jesse, uh, you had an interesting article. It was actually a little bit more than a week ago uh, about extensions uh, for the Royals. And there's been it's been a ton of extensions the last uh, couple of weeks around baseball. We've seen guys, superstars like Mike Trout, Chris Sale, Jacob Degrom, Nolan Arenado, Alex Bregman, Paul Goldschmidt, all signing long-term deals. But we've also seen like some smaller deals for guys that are just not even arbitration eligible. Guys like Herman Marquez of the Rockies, Brandon Lowe of the Rays. Um, so it seems like a trend around baseball. Obviously, there's some market forces at work here. The way owners aren't paying for for uh, free agents anymore, I think, is a factor. Um, but it seems like a long-term strategy for a lot of teams at this point. So you kind of broached the idea about the Royals doing that. I guess first of all, let's just talk about why you think um, the Royals should be doing this, and what players you think would be a good target for doing these deals. Um, well, I, I prefaced the article that I wrote with saying, you know, let's assume that it's the end of the 2019 season and they all were improved or, or better but even throwing that uh supposition out um i i do think that uh at the very least mondesi and keller maybe junis uh but mondesi and keller I, I would like to see given an extension to lock up their cost um i i'm very bullish on mondesi uh he's uh in the middle of an over 11 stretch or something right now i think but um you know, his, his stats at this point, if you had said that after a week in the season, this is where he'd be, I would have been happy with it. Uh, and Keller, I think, is just, you know, he's got a lot of upside still, but as he is now, he's a nice, solid number three pitcher. And it would be nice to not have to go out and pay somebody like a Jeremy Guthrie 11 or $12 million a year to fill that role for us. Yeah, and I, and I think for a small market team, too, it makes a lot of sense uh, just because 
it, it could save you some money, especially down the road. Hopefully, you can buy out a free you. And it's all about kind of. I think for the Royals, it's you want to show a commitment that you're willing to invest in your players. That we're not going to just sell guys off like the Marlins do. That we're building towards something. Uh, and it's also a nice reward for a guy like Whit Merrifield, um, who just who I should have mentioned is also one of those guys that signed an extension in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think it's like a nice reward for a guy that's worked hard, hasn't really gotten his his uh, financial payout yet, uh, and it kind of gives him that that money up front, so he doesn't have to wait till he gets to arbitration, uh, and, and he gets kind of rewarded for the, what he's done so far. So Monty, I think, is the most interesting guy that you raise. And Sean, you wrote about Monacy possibly getting a deal, or what kind of a deal would look like for Monacy last year. And that was when he, you know, hadn't quite shown as much as he's shown so far this year. I mean, we've seen, you know, he put up pretty good numbers in 75 games last year. Um, you know, like like Jesse said, he struggled the last couple of games, but certainly had dynamic performances in a couple of the early games on the year. Uh, what, what was kind of your thinking on what he would get at that point last year, and and has your thinking changed uh, much, and on what you think Montessi could get if the Royals worked out a long-term deal with him. Yeah, I forget. I, I comped him to somebody, and I can't remember who it was. was it Tim, um, An- to... Tim Anderson of the White Sox? Yeah, that's that's what it was. Uh, his deal was similar to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I, I think that they're a similar type of player. I know I get a lot of flack for that, uh, but I really think that they're, they're Well, and this they're also was also at that point last year before we had kind of yeah. seen more of, An- more of what Montessi more. could do. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I still, I think that they're they're not too far off from a player profile. Um, Montes is a little more dynamic than Anderson is, um, but they both are kind of that same plate discipline issue, um, but with kind of an eight power. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, with Montesi getting the extension, I mean, I like the – if I was going to offer him one, if I'm putting myself in the proverbial shoes of uh, Dayton Moore, that if I was going to offer one, then, yeah, I think I would uh, – I, I like that Anderson one more. I know that um, Sam Mellinger at the Star had a little piece maybe a week or so ago on um, after Ronald Acuna uh, with the Braves signed his eight $100 million deal. Um Sam had written something similar to that, you know, kind of drew a parallel in a way um, of, you know, hey, could maybe Montessi be working his way into maybe not 8-100, but something similar to that. Um, I definitely don't think the Royals would give him, uh, a you know, a what would be 30 million more, of, essentially, um, or 25 million more than the franchise record um, for a guy who, you know, only has two less than two years of service time. Uh, so, I mean, I think that if you were going to look at extensions for him, yeah, I think like, I think the uh, Eloy Jimenez deal is, is fair ish, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but I'm hesitant to give him one uh, personally, just, just cause the play discipline. And as you have, and it's, if you maybe saw today and you saw yesterday, um, I mean, he went down, what he struck out three times on Saturday and then twice, maybe today. And he just lost the plate. So, um, until that's, until that's rectified, that's just something that really, really makes me hesitant on doling out money. Um, I would rather just flip them through our, I mean, let them go through arbitration. Um, there was a really interesting piece. I remember, I don't remember what day it came out, but it was the past few days. Um, Oh, man, I can't forget. I've, I'm blanking on who wrote it, but basically uh, it was going on about how um, this whole rash of extensions and how teams like the Dodgers uh, haven't really done it for anybody. Um, but Scott Boris called them these extensions called them, uh, uh, snuff contracts. So basically, you know, they're snuffing out the player's potential. 
Um, and teams like the Dodgers or the Yankees don't really have to worry about this. They will just, because they can afford arbitration. So teams like the Royals and the Rays in Oakland have to give these deals out because they can't afford uh, runaway arbitration prices. Um, I don't think that's necessarily going to be an issue with Mondesi. Um, I think that, you know, his low OBP is always going to put a cap on his production value. Uh, but uh, I think that, you know, he and even like Keller and Junis, I would really just let them roll through arbitration. Uh, to me, they aren't really someone I would look to dole out guaranteed money to necessarily at an at a non uh, unreasonable cost. If it was something like Merrifield type, like that's livable, but I wouldn't do anything. The, you know, the fifties and the sixties and the seventy millions and, and on. So you come into Eloy Jimenez just to give his numbers. It was uh, he signed a six year, forty three million dollar deal before he'd even reached the big leagues. Uh, yep. And that came with two options that could stretch it to eight years, $75 million, uh, which is the richest deal ever for someone that had never uh, had any service time. So, Jesse, you had something to say? Um, not not uh, too much to contradict any of that. Um, I floated in my piece for Mondesi, eight years, $100 million, uh, saying that I didn't think that was an absurd number. Uh, and may, maybe it was slightly absurd. Again, this was assuming that at the end of this year, he's put up a three-and-a-half or a four-win season. Um, if we were trying to extend Mondesi right now, I, I certainly agree. I, I, I may be willing to give more than what Sean is, but uh, in exchange for that, I would want uh, cheaper option years out past his free agency. So, you know, if we gave him something like four or five or six years at, at $10 million a piece or, or whatever, you know, so long as we had the uh, free agency at the end where they were team options, uh, I, I think that would be the uh, the fair exchange that I would ask for. I think that's, that's kind of what the big... Um benefit to the teams is having that flexibility at the end of the deal uh, and having those contract years so that if the player works out great then you have that option to pick up those pick up those years and if he doesn't work out then you can at least kind of mitigate your damage a little bit uh, I don't think your numbers are I mean your numbers are at least in line with what Mellinger uh, had in mind in that piece that Sean referenced he has uh, Montessi a, a potential deal being six years 80 million with a club option or two, assuming that's around 18 million dollars for each year of the club option. That'd be about seven for 98 million or eight for 116 million, uh, which is a lot of money. But uh, and as Sean said, that would be a lot more than the franchise record. However, I would say I would argue that um, you know it makes a lot more sense to give uh, to have your franchise record uh, be for a player in his 20s than for in his 30s. I think we the Royals have seen. You know they they've gotten burned <laughs> signing guys to big deals in their 30s with Alex Gordon and Ian Kennedy. So I think if they were ever going to do that kind of deal again, it would definitely be for a player early in his earlier in his um in his career, someone who's in his 20s, someone who's still in his prime, so they get that value for their for their money. Uh, otherwise, um, you know it's, it doesn't really make as much sense to spend 70 million dollars on a declining player. Um, Jesse, do you think? Montessi and the Royals would be inclined to do a deal. I mean, I know you're not, you're kind of an outsider, you're a fan, just like Sean and I, but um, I mean, is, is, do you think it's something that could get done? I mean, it's been a trend around baseball, or is this maybe just something we can kick around while the Royals lose games? I mean, I think for, for the Royals side, uh, I always have heard Dayton Moore preach, uh, you know, uh, cost certainty. And as they're gearing up to hopefully contend in 2021-2022, um, having these players that are going to be entering arbitration, knowing what their salaries are going to be going into that stretch, I think they would enjoy that. Uh, maybe then be able to spend their money on free agents to supplement the hopeful new wave of uh, prospects that join. Um, as for Mondesi, I, I 
couldn't even begin to tell you if he would want to. I think that for a young kid, being guaranteed 50, 60, 70 million dollars would be uh, uh, worth the potential trade off of losing you know, 30, 40 million dollars later in your career. Um, but I, I can't speak to that. Yeah, and it's been the trend around baseball, I think, because I think players see the you know ominous labor signs are on the horizon with um, you know free agency kind of all the problems they've had with free agency and possible you know there could be a work stoppage in the next couple of years with Monesey though I do think you know first of all he grew up the son of a major leaguer which I don't want to assume that much out of his life uh, but he probably came up you know with means in his life uh, he's a son of Raul Monesey of the Dodgers so I'm going to assume he had some money uh, to his name when he's growing up um, and he also signed a $2 million bonus out of the Dominican Republic. So he has kind of gotten at least some of his payday, whereas a guy like Whit Merrifield had like a $100,000 bonus out of South Carolina. He's made, you know, less than minimum wage as a minor leaguer, finally gets to the big leagues. He's making, you know, the major league minimum wage, which is nice, but it's not, you know, life-changing money. Uh, whereas Montessi's made, you know, a couple million, which, you know, isn't going to last him his whole life, but he can at least, you know, be a little more comfortable with with his two million dollar bonus, so I feel like maybe he could wait uh, and and wait out the Royals and and maybe bank on himself instead of trying to cash in early. So uh, I'll be interested in seeing. I think you're right. The Royals do like that cost certainty. The Royals, um, I think, would probably be pretty inclined to do a deal with Montesi, especially early on if they can get a bargain and if they really expect him to explode like they've been talking about. Then it probably is the is cheaper the more the earlier you do it. I, mean, I think Sean does raise some good points about. The red flags in his career, the, the low on base percentage, uh, certainly his his penchant for swinging at pitches out of the strike zone doesn't seem to be fixed quite yet, um, as we see in the first couple games. But um, but I think there is a lot of potential there. I think it would it'd make a lot of sense to do a big yeah. deal at this point. And um, so the the piece I was referencing was uh, our old friend Andy McCullough at the LA Times actually okay. just wrote about this maybe yesterday, um, and I wanted to quote something so. Uh, and this is Evan Longoria speaking on why he took, I, I'm guessing he just asked Longoria this, um, and, but it's Longoria kind of uh, looking back on that $17.5 million deal he took um, basically a, a, after a week in the majors. And he said, <clears throat> uh, if I turn that deal, if I turned down that deal, if I went out and had a bad year the first year, I would have been like, I should have taken that deal. I should have taken it to be able to go out there and not have to worry about getting sent down, not have to worry about going over 10 and not playing the positives way outweigh the negatives for me. Um, so I do think that kind of echoing uh, Longoria there is that, you know, it, it, there is <clears throat> some ability of these contracts to take pressures off of players having to worry about, Oh my God, I have to be, not only do I have to be good for the next six years, I have to be uninjured or, you know, not only have to be uninjured, I have to be good for the next six years mm-hmm. um, to really get paid and then hit free agency. So I think that there is some benefit. Andrew Friedman, um, now of the Dodgers, echoed that sentiment in this piece as well, that he does think that sometimes these deals can actually be psychologically good for the players. They don't have to have that pressure. And I'm sure that's the same with, you know, Eloy Jimenez. He's it's probably nice for him. Uh, to, to not have to worry about, you know, being sent down. And not that he would be sent down, but it's stuff like that that's, you know, Acuna is not going to get sent down, but, you know, Jimenez could have been at that risk. So I think there is some benefit for both the team from that sense. I think what Merrifield kind of echoed some of those sentiments when he signed his deal, that like this, you know, not that he was, you know, he's always going to be a hard worker and he's always going to bust his butt out there, but it does take like a load off his mind to not worry that, you know, he's not going to be able to hit 
uh, his payday when he hits free agency or that he's not going to even get hit arbitration uh, before his, you know, his career dries up. So he, at least he can have some kind of uh, uh, security, financial security going forward. And I'm sure that is a comfort for a lot of these players. Uh, one, one thing I should mention is that all, most of the players we mentioned are, are hitters. Uh, there haven't been many, as many pitchers sign these kind of deals. And I'm sure a big component is the injury component. Uh, and Jesse, in your piece, you have J- Brad Keller and Jake Junis. You at least consider, you know, long-term deals with them. At this point, with Brad Keller, what we've seen out of him, we've, we've only seen one year out of him, really, and even that was, you know, about 140 innings. Uh, at, you know, you suggest a, a four-year, $24 million deal with a couple of club options that could make it a six-year, $60 million deal. If you're in Dayton Moore's shoes right now and Keller is open to doing a long-term deal, do you take the gamble with Keller at this point, or is, or is, is, is the injury risk and the and the risk with his his uh, ability is uh, still still too great at this point. Um, for me personally, I think that I would definitely take it, um, guaranteeing uh, the arbitration as yeah something like twenty four four for twenty four. Yeah, reading my piece here, um, you know his arbitration could outrun that, um, but probably not by a lot. Uh, but again, it's locking up those free agent years, having just a major league average pitcher at you know. 15 16 million dollars or whatever uh that that's there's a lot of value to that and he's still very young and i I always hear uh want to equate it to Corey kluber Corey kluber was 23 when he learned his slider Mm -hmm. um and and that's the age that brad keller is at now so there's always room where he could take another jump uh or again you know he could injure his arm and not throw another pitch we never know and sean you you take a pass on uh, keller at this point yeah um and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Jesse raised some good points. Um, but Keller's just a guy that like, if, if, when I look to give out extensions, um, you know, or at least buy out arbitration, I want to do it for guys that are going to, you know, most likely, you know, run, not maybe not have runaway arbitration numbers, um, but guys that, you know, like, you know, okay, we can either pay a bunch later or we can try to head some of that off now. You Like the guys like Mookie Betts, um, the Chris Bryants, the guys that, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily they have to break arbitration records, but the guys that you know are going to be in that upper 20th percentile of arbitration or you have a very strong feeling they will be. Um, Keller just doesn't ring that bell for me necessarily. Um, you know, the ERA number's nice, and I think that's a really good pushing point for, you know, when he does hit arbitration for his side to kind of plea, you know, assuming he keeps running these like low three rates. Um, but I do think that, I mean, if, when we just like saw today and even what we saw last time he started where he's throwing um, almost 50, 50 balls and strikes, um, there's just that command profile that, that just worries you way too much for guys that um, are kind of Dylan G esque in a way where it's like low strikeouts, kind of some league average walks and just is getting by, by soft contact. That's even Kyle Hendricks runs like a nice strikeout rate. And he's kind of the, the crown of that soft contact mold. Um, so I think, yeah, Keller's another guy that I would just let roll through arbitration. I, I, another thing, and, and they've moved away from wins a little bit um, in the arbitration process, but think about it. If Keller's on a bunch of bad teams, he's probably not going to be racking up many wins um, throughout the year. And I also wonder too, like just the importance of starting pitching becoming less and less, like the, the scale could really, you know, the scale for arbitration is going to lag behind, you know, the actual value of starting pitchers in real life. 
So you could see like starting pitchers be overvalued in the arbitration process, whereas like their their, their actual role in in games is not as important as it used to be. So Keller, I I, I like Keller. I think I'm a little more positive on him than than maybe you are, but um, I I do kind of agree. Like pitchers, it's, I, the injury risk is so high, and I've seen too many guys have night one nice year and then just kind of fade into obscurity. I mean, like Brad Brian Bannister was like he looked really good for a year and then his career kind of fell apart after that uh, because he couldn't strike guys out. And Keller has improved on that. I think there's there's definitely some encouraging signs with him. Um, and I do like that that Jesse suggested a lot of flexibility. I mean, at worst case scenario under this proposed deal, you'd be out twenty four million dollars, which um, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's in baseball terms, isn't going to kill you. You know, it certainly isn't going to kill your, your payroll, especially with what they've got on the books going forward. So I think that is kind of appealing and having those club options. If he does explode and become a great pitcher, you'd have that flexibility with those, with, with those options. But I think with Keller, I'm not quite at the point where I'm saying commit to him. He's going to be on our, in our rotation for the next four years. I just don't know with him yet. I think he's, he's on a good track. But uh, but it's too early to say for me. He'll be he'll he'll be super two, right? I would think. Uh, yeah, because he was with the team okay. the whole year, so opening yeah. day, right? Yeah, okay. I just so he'll be he'll be so over is... three years, so. Yeah. yeah, there is that. And also, again, you know, uh, if I were going to make the offer today to Brad Keller, it would be less than the four for 24. I mean, it would be for an extra year buying out this year as well. Right. But again, that was all written with the assumption that he's, you know, has a breakout year and he's three and a half or a four win pitcher yeah. this year. Well, yeah, that's true. We should uh, remember that that was your caveat at the beginning of the year that that he, uh, he he's assuming he's already given us another solid performance this year. Uh, and then Jake Junis, we should at least mention a little bit. I do like the Junis deal that you propose. It's four years, sixteen and a half million dollars, because mostly because it's so cheap. I mean, I think we saw that uh, with the Cubs do that this week with uh, David Bodie, who I was like, they they're going to sign David Bodie to an extension. That's interesting. Uh, but it was so cheap. It's like, well, why not? I mean, at least you lock him up, and um, you know, if he you know breaks out somehow, then you've got a really nice player under a really cheap deal. Uh, Sean is you know if if is, is there a point where there some of these long term deals are so uh, cost efficient that, that it doesn't really matter what the player's performance is that much. Um, so, so with Junis, yeah, I mean, I think I actually like a Junis extension more than I like a Keller one. Um, just cause Junis, Junis has a better command profile than Keller and Junis strikes out more guys. Um, he's obviously several years older. Um, I mean, not crazy older, but I think three years older. Um, but I, I like the Junis one. I think you could see Junis. Um, I think, I think the, the distribution of outcomes for Junis, the, the, isn't quite as wide as what it could be for Keller. And, you know, if you, if you extend Keller, you know, you're kind of, um, saving yourself what could be potential money if he breaks out to the right side of that kind of distribution. Um, whereas Junis might be more centered on his distributions, but I still think that you've got a one to two win player pretty much every year. Um, so I, I mean, that's what I like about, um, uh, Junis extending them for that. Um, with the oh my god, now I'm like, what did you, what did you ask? Now I'm totally blanking on. Oh, that. about the David Bodie uh, deal with the Cubs. yes, yes, right, right. I was going to bring up the Bodie thing with O'Hearn actually. Um, oh, someone, O'Hearn would be interesting. Uh, Cl- yep, Clint Scholes uh, had had kind of put that out into the air on would you sign O'Hearn to an extension? And I um, with as far as the the Bodie and the kind of. Um, the surplus gain on that. I mean, there is something I'm working on and I'm working on kind of a whole way to value contracts. And there is something that's, um, it, it's 
at least in finance, um, Graham is the author of this kind of principle. Uh, it's called the margin of safety, where um, even if you know, so like, let's say we know that Jake Junis is worth, let's say, three wins. Um, and we'd be very, very certain he's worth three wins. Um, you know, how how much margin of safety do we want to build, build into that number? Um, so when you look at a contract, I do think that you have to leave yourself with, okay, let's say this guy is worth $100 million. Um, but we don't want to pay 100 million. You probably want to pay 70 million um, because you want to give yourself some safety in case he's not actually worth 100 million. Um, and that's just in finance. That's a common principle when you're, you know, purchasing stocks is you want to leave yourself some room to be wrong. And especially since, you know, okay, let's say that he's worth 100 million. We sign him for 80 million. We've got him in surplus. Is that really enough surplus to risk 80 million? Um, but I think in these really low deals like the Bodie deals. Um, or even even maybe even the Eloy uh, Jimenez deal, I think that's good value. Um, I don't think you're going to really necessarily regret giving whatever Bodie got, $16 million. Um, and so the same with Junis. I think that, yeah, maybe you have to eat $16 million, um, but because you are you're kind of know what Junis already is, and, you know, God forbid you're out that money. They paid Alex Rios $8 million or whatever, um, like it was nothing. So I think that there there can be with margin of safety. I think I think it's a really good idea that if it's the lower ones, the kind of lower value ones, those ones you should be able to give out like candy, essentially. So knowing how bad the Royals have been at um, evaluating players lately, how big of their how big does their margin of safety have to be? Because <laughs> uh, yeah. they haven't really been <laughs> yeah. nailing it when it comes to how, evaluating how good players are. Yeah, yeah, that's so. a good question. And <laughs> I mean. Teams like uh, like the Cubs or even you know the Dodgers, the Red Sox, their margin of safety is a lot wider. Um, Warren Buffett's margin of safety is a lot wider than mine. Um, so I think I think yeah, that's a good point. And I think the Royals um, they have to really be sure that they're going to rein in surplus value. Otherwise, um, their mar- their margin of safety is wide. I guess is the way to put it. They need to have a big margin of safety. Do you think the Royals are going to be pretty inclined to do some of these deals in the next couple months, knowing that they want to? accelerate their timetable and be you know competitive again pretty soon yeah i don't know i mean what's the history of this merrifield perez well, they signed gordon they signed yeah they signed salvi pretty early on they signed alex gordon billy butler uh zach Greinke. all i want to say in their pre pre-arbitration years or maybe they once they hit arbitration okay. um hosmer they never really locked up to a long-term deal i think hosmer i think his agent uh, scott boris was up to that uh, but it feels like they've done it for players that are open to it. Yeah, um, and I'm looking. And, I mean, what comes off the books right now? I uh, forget. So, so Baseball Reference has it as 100 million is opening day. I think that's pretty close to what we came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have 62 million guaranteed next year, and then 36 in 2021. So, I mean, the money's definitely there. It's not like they're pushing up against payroll like they were the past few years, where they were. Not only did they have a losing team, but they were paying 125, 130 million for that losing team. Um, now, really, next year it's basically Alex. The highest paid player is going to be Kennedy. Then he's gone. Uh, Duffy. Then he's gone after 2021. Perez gone after 2021. Um, so I mean, there is a lot of room, and uh, in theory, they could probably, if they wanted to, uh, Jorge Soler's. He's ARB eligible in 2021. I mean, I don't think they'd cut him, but that's you know money you could figure it out. So I think they'll definitely have the money to do such offers, particularly this off season. Maybe they don't want to spend the money now, but this winter, um, with a bunch of money coming off, at least Gordon's 20 million. I think yeah. I mean, there's plenty of space. 
and it's kind of interesting how they structure the Merrifield deal too. It actually goes down in the last year. So I mean, the other thing that these deals allow you to do is kind of uh, be flexible and like, okay, we know there's going to be a lot of money we want to save for 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 free agents in 2021. We could structure so Merrifield salary is a little lower that year, but we know we have more space in 2020, so we'll have a, a, a higher salary that year. So yeah. it allows for a little more creativity. I haven't seen and, a lot of teams do that yet, but the Royals could. Yeah. And I want to ask both you guys, um, Merrifield's got that 2023 $2.5 million option. Who will be whatever, 31, 2, 3, 4. Do you think that gets picked up? $10.5 million for age age 34 Merrifield. You can go first, Jesse. Um, I, I, I would say probably not. I think Merrifield is a great player right now, uh, but I, I think that he's – uh, relies on speed quite a bit for his game, and I, I think that he's just going to drop off. I don't see him developing more power to compensate for it either. I think he will. I think they will get picked up. Uh, I think they could decline, but I think the Royals really like him, so he could decline a bit. And the Royals would still say they really like what he brings to the table. They think he can bounce back. He's got a great work ethic, great clubhouse chemistry. Yeah, uh, I think. And, and ten and a half million really isn't a terrible amount of money these days for a kind of veteran player so um but we'll see i don't know like the, the game's kind of changing in that respect so maybe maybe by then that'll seem like a really high deal for a 34 year old player in his decline oh yeah so i guess we know that the royals won't be extending their their bullpen uh but hopefully the bullpen will be improving <laughs> uh by the next time we speak uh but i'll kind of wrap it up for us this week uh, maybe hopefully by the by the time you hear this podcast, the Royals would have will have broken their losing streak and won a game, or at least by the time we have our next podcast. But uh, Jesse, thanks so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts on the article. No, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And Sean, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And do you want to present? Do, do we have drum roll? Do you have the the our new? Uh, uh, I do. Closing? So. Uh... So the winner, um, and I'll we'll we'll make sure he gets his prize. Um, Dan, uh, his Twitter handle is lot underscore forty nine. You guys might have interacted with him, but I know that I've talked to him a few times on Twitter. It's not nepotism. I'm not, not that we're related, but I'm not just picking favorites. Uh, perfect, the perfect one. So if anyone who maybe watches Jimmy Kimmel, he leaves off most shows. He shows saying apologies to Matt Damon for running out of time. <laughs> uh, so ours is going to be apologies to Cedis Escobar for running out of time. <laughs> I love it. We couldn't have him on, Very but maybe nice. next podcast. We'll have them on. Um, so that's our that's our winner. So that's apologies. Great. I love it. All right, I, I love it, and uh, that, that's that's a perfect one. And so, <laughs> thanks to Dan, and he's going to get his free copy of uh, Outside uh, OTP t- 2020. And uh, and thanks so much for providing the new ending catch phrase for this podcast. So I guess I know we heard it once, but you give it to us, give it again, and we'll. Yep. Apologies to Asides Escobar. We ran out of time. Uh, maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs>